This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello, welcome to the Great Ormond Street Pediatric Bioethics Podcast. Our guests today are Professor Dave Archard, Emeritus Professor of Moral Philosophy at Queen's University, Belfast, Chair of the Nuffield Council of Bioethics, generally a member of our Great Ormond Street Pediatric Bioethics Centre, and Professor Sir Michael Marmot, Director of the UCL Institute of Health Equity. Important to say both are speaking in a personal capacity, and I'm Joe Briley, I'm the Director of the Pediatric Bioethics Centre at Great Ormond Street. Welcome, both of you. Thank you so much for joining us. I think when we first planned this podcast a few months ago, our initial plans were to talk about a report that your group, Michael, had done with Ian Sinner from Alder Hay, looking at a very alarming prediction of significant mortality in children because of fuel poverty and some you know, major concerns about all the effects of global problems that are going on at the moment, but real local difficulties with people's ability to afford fuel for their homes and the effects that would have on children. You've always done a lot of work about the social determinants of health, but I, I'm interested in intervention that did occur probably as a result of that report and what your thoughts are about whether the intervention was enough. Can we measure it? What do you think were the effects of the report and did it avert the potential catastrophe that looked like was going to happen? It's very difficult to plot a one-to-one relation between a report and what happens subsequently. So I have no illusions that a particular report changes everything. That may happen occasionally, but I doubt that it ever happens in my case. That's not to say it's without impact. And in fact, hellishly, soon after we reported, there was that coroner's report for the two-year-old child who died of mold. Absolutely. Appalling, absolutely appalling. So we produced this report based on evidence that cold homes, mold can damage children's lungs and their mental health and early child development and school performance, as well as damaging adult health. And then we get this individual case where the coroner said this death was entirely preventable. It was due to mold. I would say our report contributed to the understanding that health and health inequalities are a consequence of the social and economic policy decisions that are being made. I wouldn't for one moment suggest that the government had their energy price guarantee because of our report, but I would say our report contributed to the debate and the understanding of the problems people were facing because of fuel poverty. The other thing, though, to say is that the problems of fuel poverty didn't just arise because of the cost of living crisis. Fuel poverty has three components, poverty, the price of fuel, and the thermal property of housing. Poverty has been increasing as a result of government policy for a dozen years. Child poverty went up. It went after housing costs. Child poverty was 27% in 2010. It went up to 30% in 2019. It dipped slightly with the first year of the pandemic and went up to 31% in 2022. 
child poverty defined as living in a household of less than 60% median income. And that was a direct result of government policy. So poverty was increasing. The thermal property of housing, the government stopped investing in home insulation in 2013. So they were still investing in 2012. And then it fell off a cliff. They stopped doing it. So our housing had poor thermal properties. And then the price of fuel, I won't try and unhinge the minds of your listeners by explaining how our dysfunctional energy market works, but there's a technical term for it. It's bonkers. Yeah. 60% of our energy comes from nuclear and renewables, 30% from gas, of which a minority comes from Russia. When the price of gas goes up, we pay more for renewables. What? The price of gas goes up, so we pay more for wind power. And the renewable energy companies are pocketing fortunes, quite apart from Shell, BP, Centrica, the companies that trade in oil and gas. So because of our totally dysfunctional energy market, people are shivering and children's lungs are being damaged. So all three of those, poverty, thermal property of housing and the dysfunctional nature of our energy market were contributing to fuel poverty before the cost of living crisis and the price of energy zoomed up. So it is an acute on chronic crisis. That's super clear. And I, I'm going to head towards Dave now, but I'm going to get him wound up a bit by just adding to the thermal property stuff that the comparison between house building in the United Kingdom and house building on, I don't know, mainland Europe doesn't compare very favorably in terms of sustainable thermal properties of new builds of houses. So it isn't just about trying to get better stuff into older houses. The way we build houses is pretty poor compared to other countries. Dave, Michael's group is a very strong advocacy element. And I wanted to come to you and really think about the children's rights part of this, because that's shared really in terms of trying to push for better treatments of children in, in our society, but, but it's not been going well, I would argue. I mean, COVID disproportionately affected children with benefits for, for older people, to be frank. Children affected by lockdown measures, very little child-centered build back better as we'd hoped for initially, and austerity strikes, and in other countries as well, wars, natural disasters, fortunately not so prevalent in the UK, but they all impact children. So. Can you take us to areas that make the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child and, and what we think about that can maybe change this and help us advocate for children? Sure. I mean, I think I want to start by just saying how important the work of Michael is because reminding the public and politicians that health has social determinants is so crucial. And I think during COVID, for instance, it was a, sometimes an uphill battle to remind people that certain groups in society were going to suffer disproportionately because of pre-existing social conditions. And we knew that members of ethnic minority groups, the old single parents and children were going to suffer worse than any other group. And I remember as an example of that, doing an interview on the BBC when they were starting to talk towards what they thought was the end of the pandemic about acceptable levels of deaths. And said, what's the number? You're, you're the chair of the Nuffield Council. Give us a number. And I said, you can't even begin to have that discussion until you understand what is meant by otherwise avoidable deaths. And that has to take into account a lot of factors that you might be unwilling to do so. 
And you also have to think whether the question is how many people die or how are those deaths distributed across society? Because we know that they're distributed disproportionately among certain groups. But to take up your question of rights, the government is, of course, both a signatory to and a ratifier of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, the CRC. We may come back to the question of how good a citizen the UK is in terms of that convention. But a number of things about that convention, there is a, an impressive list of rights in that convention. Mm. And the first thing it says at the very beginning is all these rights, all of them, are enjoyed by all children everywhere in the world and irrespective of national origin, social background, ethnicity or gender. Now, clearly, that means that you can't pick and choose which rights children have and enjoy. However, some rights are, I think, clearly more important than others. I mean, just simply the right to life, Article 6, you might think that's one of the most important rights to have protected for children. But I think there's another sense in which rights can be important, and that's if they serve as a precondition of or foundation for other rights. So Article 24 gives children the right to enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of health. And Article 27 gives all children the right to a standard of living adequate for the child's mental, spiritual, moral, and social development. So it doesn't seem to me you can talk about some rights, say the right to education, unless you've already guaranteed that children have a certain level of health and health care and health provision. So in the first instance, the sort of work that Michael does points out how children from certain backgrounds or just generally suffer disproportionately. And as a result, if their health is poor, it doesn't make sense to talk about them as enjoying all the other rights that the CRC guarantees to them. So that's the first thing I want to say about the CRC, but I'm sure we'll come back to the question of what it actually means for the UK to be a ratifier of the CRC. Thank you. I guess to move us a little bit into maybe a bit more of the healthcare aspects. I'm interested in some of the very high expense treatments we have great success with in the UK. And I guess I'm slightly guilty coming from a background of a pediatric intensive care area where we spend an awful lot of money on quite few children compared to the broader population funding for things like the social determinants of health. And I, I'm interested particularly, Michael, how you kind of rationalize, I'll pick one example, a, a treatment that's been announced a few days ago in the press in the UK, which is a wonderful transforming treatment for a child who had metachromic leukodystrophy, a single gene treatment for 2.875 million. Now that's a life-saving changing treatment for that individual. And it's a wonderful story. But when you think about what that sort of expense could buy in the worlds of many other children and children dying of mold in houses, and I, I wonder how you, you know, get your head around that sort of stuff. I, I struggled to do that. Well, one way I get my head around it is to say you're posing the wrong question. Mm. It's not expensive treatment or action on the social determinants of health. If we were in Norway now, we could have the same discussion about should we spend that much on a single child? Why Norway? Well, we're doing a report for the Norwegian government, so it's on my mind. Um, if you compare child poverty in the UK with, say, Norway, the UK, I've already mentioned, it's up around 30%. In Norway, it's more like 11%. But spending on children aged 0 to 5, the average for OECD countries 
is $6,000 per child per year. In Norway, they spend $12,000. In the UK, we spend $4,000, less than average. And I get asked, well, where's the money going to come from? Hang on a minute. If you look at the taxation rate in the UK compared with virtually all other European countries, in Finland, 52% of GDP is government receipts from taxation of all forms. 52% France, just under 52%. Germany, Austria, Italy. We are 36%. The Americans are lower, they're 31%. So we're a very low tax country. If we got up to, never mind the Nordic, the Scandinavian levels, if we just got up to the OECD average, we could do a lot to reduce child poverty. We could do a lot to spend on children aged 0 to 5. And then we could still have this discussion about the ethical conundrum, dilemma, problem of how much we should spend on expensive treatment for an individual child. So I don't agree with posing it as expensive treatment or social determinants of health. Let's get our priorities right as a society. And then we still have that discussion about expensive treatment versus more for the average child. I deliberately knew I was going to be stoking that answer from you. I couldn't agree more. I think some of the comparisons across the board in health, let's alone in, in pediatrics, are, are extremely distressing when you compare what's happening in the UK compared to other similar countries. Dave, any thoughts? On that, I think Michael's absolutely right. There's a terrible danger to make this a zero-sum choice. You know, you do one or the other, and that's clearly not the case. And I would have thought you can make the case for certain public health provision and initiatives, certain social care ones, and they just point to the overall balance of gains from those expenditures. After all, we're paying the cost of serious illnesses, preventable illnesses across the population. I think the problem which Michael has alluded to is the low tax burden. And unfortunately, we have two major parties who are extremely unwilling to go with tax increases. And the Labour Party's reluctance can be, I think, dated back to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown thinking they would not be electable if they made a commitment to increase taxation. And unfortunately, that's now accepted as a sine qua non of any acceptable manifesto. But, you know, people are looking at the moment at the crisis in the National Health Service. And I think starting to think, as a public, quite starkly, if you want a national health service, a well-funded national health service that meets your needs from cradle grave, then there has to be an increase in the tax burden, or we make significant cuts elsewhere, and it's very hard to see what those would be. So I think it's a question of winning the argument for being more like our European neighbours in the ways in which we're prepared to fund and support certain services. It's worth checking Commonwealth Foundation report comes out every few years that shows how little the UK spends on healthcare compared to many other countries and what sorts of things it spends on as well. Maybe just pursuing that a little bit, Michael, I think despite your work, I would generally argue that the social determinants of health are not that well understood by the general population still. And I would flag that I don't think they're that well understood by many healthcare professionals either. And I wonder what what we might do about that. I mean, I think we're so busy, we're so focused on trying to rush through and see patients quickly and deliver health that actually for some of us, that step back and think about 
why people come in, why people are not taking their medications, why people can't afford to come to clinics, why children are going to school hungry and not taking their medicines. It's almost too big for us to deal with as healthcare professionals on the floor of the, the hospital, really. What would you say to encourage us to get involved, to get engaged with that? Because I think it's really important that we do that. Well, I'm biased by being involved in it day after day, hour after hour. That's what I do. But I think it's changing. I think it's changing. When I produced Health Equity in England, the Marmot Review 10 years on, in February 2020, just before the pandemic began, the Royal College of Physicians convened a group of the medical royal colleges, wrote an open letter to the Prime Minister urging him to implement the recommendations in my 2020 report, my 10 years on report. And then having got that group together, they formed a Health Inequalities Alliance. Initially, when it was the medical royal colleges, and then they had about 70 members running my eye down the list. Their names either began with Royal or with B, but British. So the British Lung Foundation, British Diabetic Association, British Heart Foundation. So the major medical charities, the medical royal colleges, they now have over 200 members. I mean, when I started doing this, if I knocked on the door of the medical royal colleges and said, health inequalities, social determinants of health, you know, nobody wanted to listen. They really want to listen. They mm. really want to listen now. It really is a sea change. We may have a long way to go. And it's not just in the medical. Well, let's stick with healthcare for the moment. We were asked by NHS England to do a report on measuring accountability for health inequalities within the healthcare system or now within integrated care systems, which is health and social care, approached by the NHS to provide a guidance on accountability for health inequalities. The East London Foundation Trust declared itself a Marmot Trust. We've been working with ICS integrated care systems in different parts of the country. And then in this place-based network, the health equity network that we launched on the 24th of January, Coventry was the first Marmot city, Greater Manchester, Cheshire and Merseyside, Lancashire and Cumbria, the north of Tyne has approached us, Leeds wants to be a Marmot city, Waltham Forest, Luton. Gwent in Wales, the Southwest region, we're getting this take up for place-based action, including health and care systems all around the country. It's a major change. I don't think I'm just deluding myself by saying that it's what I focus on. Yes, there's a long way to go, but the fact that the medical royal colleges are recognizing it that integrated care systems, NHS England, city governments, the only people who seem not to notice are the government in Westminster. That's exactly where I was going to go on to, actually, because it does seem that way. Yes. <laughs> I guess there are lots of people seeing a need to change. I think society's unfairness is problematic in many ways. And as you say, there are people listening, taking action, starting to come on board. 
I guess I was more thinking about people on the floor than the organizations, because in some ways, each of us needs to make changes ourselves. One of the things that we've learned from the climate crisis is that actually change starts with us, doesn't it? We all have a, a personal responsibility. So is there, is there anything people might do? Mike? Yeah. So I spent a year as president of the World Medical Association. Before that, a year as president of the British Medical Association which is a bit odd, really, because I've spent my life saying that the key determinants of health of populations are the social determinants of health, not the healthcare system. So I'm trying to engage with what can medical associations and healthcare personnel do. And we said five things, education and training. So it relates to your initial question of how much understanding is there of the social determinants of health. And we need to have it in undergraduate and postgraduate training. Second, seeing the patient in broader perspective. Well, a good clinician would do that. You don't treat a rough sleeper, treat their pneumonia or their liver disease and sling them back onto the street. At least you might, but that's not very good practice of medicine. The third is we initially said the health service as employer, but I'd now broaden it out and say anchor institution, good employer, impact on the community, the environment. The fourth is working in partnership. So when you ask what can the individual clinician do, not too much, but you can by working in partnership with others. And the fifth is advocacy, raising your voice, being heard on behalf of the patients and the communities that we serve. Great. Thank you. I'm going to wrap up with the last couple of questions. Again, maybe thinking more about healthcare from our perspective. A lot of children live very dependently. And I guess the initial conversation we have is about the difficulties of poverty, about affording fuel. We have many children living at home on ventilators, having assisted feeds. Children with bad lungs, we know will do worse in cold homes, that's for sure. But also the current things in society at the moment, strikes, transport problems, healthcare staff going on strike and healthcare shortages, drug shortages, Brexit issues, they all seem to again be something that will affect children quite badly. And I guess in terms of, well, Dave, maybe, maybe first then Michael, thinking about children's rights and activism, Dave. I don't know, I'm being very nihilistic at the moment. It seems harder than ever, that kind of demonization of young asylum seekers, tell them you're an adult. The stuff we saw in Merseyside, somewhere close to my heart, you know, they're pulling attack on other people in a very vulnerable situation. Right. And I, maybe to you first, what, what do you think next year's UK UNCRC report will look like? I mean, C negative must improve is the standard. It, could it drop? I don't know if it can go much lower. I suspect that there will be the standard comment that there are concerns by the Committee of the Rights of the Child of the steps the government is taking to implement the measures of the convention. Well, I mean, that's like a standard criticism which the UK receives all the time. I mean, they may pick out particular issues they have, say the plight of asylum children, plight of children in care, plight of children under the juvenile justice system. All of these have been the subject of criticisms in the past. I mean, the important thing to bear in mind, and this is to compound your depression and pessimism, Joe, is it's all rather token. I mean, the, the, the UK government has to provide a report to 
the Committee on the Rights of the Child, and it has to respond to criticisms, but it's not obligated to do anything to change its ways. And I think a measure of how low children are on the political chain is that we have four regional children's commissioners, but all of whose roles is really essentially proselytizing advisory. They're not in a position to hold the government to account in any realistic sense. We have a children's minister, but that's as an underparliamentary secretary and junior minister at the Department of Education. And that probably tells you an awful lot about the status of children for the British government. So I tend to be extremely pessimistic. And remember, since Michael spoke about comparing us with European countries, there are a number of European countries that have incorporated the CRC into domestic law. Norway is a good example, has done that. And there have been demands that the UK do that, but we know what attitude the UK government takes to international covenants of rights. So, you know, we have a situation in which the Human Rights Act, which is the incorporation of the European Convention on Human Rights into domestic law, under threat. So the chances of ever seeing the CRC be an item of domestic law seems to me very, very slim. So we can make the usual noises, but I'm not sure how much will actually change. I mean, I'll challenge you as Michael roast the challenge from my pessimism to kind of what can individuals do? What can we achieve as a group? What should people, you know, call to arms, Dave, what can people do rather than sit here and grumble away? What can we do? And that's me, not you, by the way, but what, what can we do to get engaged, try and change this for children? I think you raise the issue of children at every available opportunity. If you're a member of a political party, you make sure it's on the top of their agenda. Ensure that's represented in anything that the party's committee. You make contact with your MP. There are all the standard measures if you want to be campaigning and active. But I think changing the public mindset about certain matters is a long and difficult process. You know, and I'm an academic with certain commitments. I also have a strong interest in public policy and how we translate any academic work into public policy. So we have to be realistic about what is possible. So I'm not about to head to the street with others and demand changes. But change could be on the way, it could be good. There are things that will go into place that will change our society in the next few years. Yeah, and I, I mean, I want to add one thing to what Michael said earlier, which I think is really interesting about this and the difficulty of getting people to accept the social determinants of health. I don't know whether he or you, Joe, are aware of the great dystopian Victorian novel Erewhon by Samuel Butler, which was written towards the end of the 19th century. Nowhere backwards is how the title comes about. And it's a tremendous satire on Victorian values. And one of the most pertinent is that in Erewhon, the inhabitants regard illness as a crime and criminal action as a result of illness. And he meant that as a satire on Victorian values. But it's quite clear a lot of people, not too far removed from Downing Street, do think that illness is the responsibility of the ill person. And one of the biggest blocks to seeing the social determinants of ill health is the continuing Victorian belief that somehow individuals are at fault. You know, if they're ill, it's their problem. And, you know, almost we punish them for ending up as a burden on our health service. So Samuel Butler saw it in Erewhon over 100 and almost 150 years ago. Well, we can't leave on that note, Michael. Well, yeah. I mean, firstly, let me sing a hymn of praise in favor of naivety. I'm naive to a fault. And I believe that if you tell the truth and you have evidence to back up your position, you'll make progress. So tell me that's naive. Okay, but that's what I do. I don't know how to get into smoke-filled rooms or do deals or 
whatever you need to get political change. Let's tell the truth and argue from the evidence. And whenever people depart from the evidence or don't tell the truth, let's call them out. So when a senior politician says people can live on 30p a day and it's their fault if they don't, show them the evidence. Show them that if people were to follow the healthy eating advice, those in the poorest 10% of households would have to spend 74% of household income on food. This isn't laziness. This isn't failure to budget. In fact, if you're in the bottom 10% of household income, you spend so much more of your day budgeting than somebody higher up the income distribution. Because you've got to think, how am I going to put food on the table this evening? You don't go to the supermarket and just stock up for a week without thinking. You think, my goodness, dry pasta has gone up. I better get something. Maybe baked beans will do it. You have to spend enormous amount of time budgeting. So the first thing is argue from the evidence. That may not change people's minds. I mean, there's a certain you know, but deficit in thinking amongst some of our politicians who are impervious to evidence. But the better ones do listen to the evidence. Whether they come from the right, the center, or the left, the better ones do. The second thing I would say, I was given a little book recently, had something to celebrate. It's always nice having something to celebrate. A book of essays by Raymond Williams. And on the cover, it says to be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing. And that resonated with me. That's what I do. That's my job, to make hope possible. That's why I don't spend a lot of time despairing about our politicians in Westminster. I get on a train and go to Manchester or to Newcastle, where people really want to talk and act and do. I mean, I had a meeting earlier this week with the mayor of South Yorkshire. He said, our ambition is to make South Yorkshire the healthiest place to live in Britain. And I said, even if you're not the most prosperous place, he said, that's our challenge. That's why we want to work with you. He didn't say we're poor, the government's made deep cuts to local authority spending and there's nothing we can do. He said, our ambition is to make South Yorkshire the healthiest place in Britain. Great. They're the people I want to work with. Let's make hope possible rather than despair convincing. And there are people all around the country who have that as their core mission. So don't succumb to despondency. Work with people of good faith, work from the evidence, and we can make a difference. So let me just support that. And, and so that, Joe, you're left on a happy note. Firstly, I had the good fortune to hear and see Raymond Williams many, many years ago. And he's one of the great, great figures of British literary culture and academic life. Superb individual. Everybody should know his name and read his, his work. I don't think it's naive to think you have an obligation always to speak the truth to power and always to demand that anything that's said. In terms of naivety, I'd rather like the famous phrase that's used by the Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci, which was, 
pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will, which he actually borrowed from the French writer. But that's the secret. You may, in your darkest hours, think how bad it is and how unlikely it is things will change, but you have to act on the presumption that you can make a difference and can make change. And that's the optimism of the will. Wonderful. Speak truth to power. Use data. Call people out when they're not telling the truth. And move to Rotherham is what I've got from that. So, <laughs> gentlemen, thank you so much. That was wonderful. We'll be back with another Pediatric Bioethics podcast soon. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the GOSH Bioethics podcast. We would love to get your feedback on the episode, as well as suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear about. You can find a link to the feedback survey in the description for the episode. If you want to hear more about the work of the GOSH Learning Academy, you can find us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn, or you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.